This is Michael Campbell. You're listening to Money Talks, brought to you by Solera Club. Now, before we get going today, I have to get something off my chest. Hey, lots of media coverage this week of Justin Trudeau's first 100 days in office. Well, I'm dying to know, has the new Prime Minister been asked even one difficult question by the media? Now, I follow this stuff very closely, and I've yet to see anything even close to a difficult question. I mean, the CBC, led by Peter Mansbridge, have been embarrassingly sycophantic. Now, luckily, we still have a few good commentators like the National Post, Sandra Coyne, CBC's Rex Murphy, that have put the public interest first by not losing their ability to think critically when it comes to the new government. But they don't have near enough company. As I've stated before, this has nothing to do with Prime Minister Trudeau. It's not his fault. In fact, I think this kind of fawning actually does him harm, and it certainly does a disservice to the public. I mean, it's a complete surrender to form over substance. I mean, way too many in the media are letting their progressive undergarments show. I'm going to leave that now, but I was just asking, even one difficult question? And that brings me to a related observation, related to the lack of critical thinking on the part of the media. And I thought it was summed up really well by Rex Murphy, who accurately pointed out how few friends Alberta has in the country. I mean, come on, that's surprising given how much money Alberta sent to other parts of the country through equalization payments and how much employment's provided for people migrating from other provinces. Now, even in the boom times, the proportion of critics of Alberta to supporters, what, was it 500 to 1 or something like that? Maybe that's understating it. I mean, talk about taking the goose that lays the golden egg for granted. I mean, the roots of the criticism seem to be about threefold. I mean, one, Alberta isn't part of central Canada's power establishment. Two, it voted Conservative, both federally and provincially, until last May. But they didn't vote for the old Tory blue Conservative Party out of Ontario. No, it was the new version, with its roots in Alberta, thanks to Preston Manning, and then Stephen Harper as Prime Minister. And number three, its biggest sin. It's an oil producer, led by the oil sands. It became the number one target of U.S.-financed environmental opposition. I mean, the environmental movement is enamored for symbols. Far more than personal action, hence the major carbon-munching celebrities targeted the oil sands far more than their own consumption. And Alberta is the symbol. The oil sands became the symbolic target. And this brings us to Rex Mercy's observation that, again, reflects on the lack of critical thinking in way too much of the media. The critics, in quotes, the critics bark without scrutiny, never receive the zealous oversight they impose on the oil industry. Environmental reporting is heinously one-sided and closed-minded. In many and substantial ways, the term environmental reporting is a contradiction in terms, end of quote. And I couldn't agree more. I personally witnessed, actually, going back a few years, television stations literally running video shot by Greenpeace on more than one occasion. But the point is that way too often critical thought is absent from the discussion of Alberta, the oil sands, resource development in, in general. Now, my complaint isn't about someone's point of view. I mean, go ahead, oppose resource extracting, oppose pipelines. You're welcome to it. My complaint is that the discussion focuses on only one side while profoundly important facts are left out. I'll give you an example. If you're not going to transport oil or gasoline, natural gas, diesel, jet fuel by pipeline, how are you going to do it? Because demand isn't going away for a long time. Another example. Tell me how we're going to afford the increasing costs of health care and public sector pensions, which are already underfunded by a quarter trillion dollars, without the resource industry. Look how government revenues are doing right now with the downturn alone in the resource industry led by oil. I mean, the National Bank this week issues a report that says that the federal deficit is going to be significantly higher than promised by Mr. Trudeau, 
part of the problem is that they estimated that the weak economy led by weaker resources is going to cost the government about $50 billion in revenue over the next four years. Now, I don't have to tell anybody listening from Alberta today about the impact of the decline in oil price and activity on the provincial government's revenue. But we rarely hear that side of the story, and that's my complaint. Not opposition to it, uh, oil resources or oil. No, it's no critical evaluation of the issue. I know, as usual, I'm all concerned about the practical. But I'll tell you, adherence to an ideology can't allow critical thinking. In fact, it dispenses with it. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Remember, Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. That means you get paid first, there's no fees attached, and it's in the tech area. So for more information, go to soleraclub.com. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Hey, Jim Dines is my guest today. Can you believe it? Only show in North America to get him on. He's changed his mind about gold. I'll tell you all sorts of things about that. And, of course, the stock market. I've also got a big fat idea for you. I've got a great shocking stat. got a goofy award. I've got Ozzy Jurek and Michael Levy's on deck. Top three stories that smart people are talking about. Stay with us on the Chorus Network. Jim Dines coming up at the top of the hour. Looking forward to that. I've got a big fat idea coming up in just a couple of minutes. But right now, Michael Levy has been scanning the news stories. What's the biggest three stories of the week that you should know about? Hey, Michael, what's number three? Well, number three is, and catch this, Mike, yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds fall below zero for the first time. And that means negative interest rates, which you've been talking about, we've been talking about. Well, Japan was the last of the central banks that have gone negative so far. And even though they said one week before the announcement, the prime minister stated they weren't going to do that, they went negative. And with that, the Japan 10-year bonds, government bonds, have gone negative, which means if you buy a Japanese 10-year bond, you're going to get your money back, but less a little because the interest rate is a negative one. Yeah, same thing happening in Switzerland. Fifteen countries have negative bonds. You know, Mike, this is my story, the negative yield thing, where I'm just begging people, how can you say it's business as usual when something like this is happening on such a major level, you know, central bank action? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to change the conversation, and, and, and I'm failing dramatically, but this is just yet another example. Well, Mike, you're not going to fail because... People are going to now be experiencing it. It's one thing to talk yeah. about and people to observe, but when we start to experience it ourselves, all of a sudden it's a big, huge head shake. And that's what's happening, and it's happening not just in places like Europe. It's happening over Europe. It's happening in Japan. And according to the Bank of Canada, the Governor of the Bank of Canada, it could happen here. Yeah, Janet Yellen mentioned it also in her speech this week, you know, Federal Reserve. Uh, yeah, I mean, the incredible thing, I, I'll get to your second story in just one second, Mike, but the incredible thing is think of how long Japan has had, uh, not negative rates, but, you know, I remember being shocked in the 90s and early 2000s that, you know, interest rates were 1% or 1.5% when ours were still, you know, kind of 9 10%. It's done nothing for them. That economy has not recovered in 25 years. And, of course, the negative or the low record low rates, look what it's done in Canada, nothing. Look what it's done in Europe, nothing. Nothing. What's your number two story? Well, this is linked to the number one story, and they were completely separate, Mike. When the yield on a five-year Canadian bond 
and this is again a government bond, is the same as the overnight bank rate. Recession in Canada may be on the horizon. This according to Mark Chandler. He's head of Canadian fixed income for Royal Bank of Canada. But think of this. The overnight bank rate is a half of 1%. On Wednesday of this week, the five-year government of Canada rate was a half of 1%. And Chandler says with that kind of a scenario... We, we may be on the brink of a recession here in Canada. So you've got five-year rates at 0.5%. You've got the same as the overnight rate, basically. And what you're saying that Mr. Chandler is saying is, hey, when we've done that before, now you're looking at recessionary possibilities. And uh, obviously we're seeing that reflected in some other numbers, too. I mean, certainly the economy's weak. Well, it is, Mike, but what, you're, what is going to have to happen very quickly is that you need a yield curve that grows as you go out from the bank rate, paying a very small return all the way to the 1, 2, 5, 10, and 30-year bonds, and each one should increasingly pay a little more. When that's not the case, and it isn't right now, it's a sign that short-term rates will be lowered in response to the weakening economy, and that's one of the major signs. Recession is in, in the offing, and that means that the Bank of Canada, in order to have that yield curve be a little more at five years than it is at the overnight, is going to have to cut rates. And if they cut rates, back to story one, Canada could go to negative interest rates. And just by the way, very quickly, yesterday the five-year Canada's were yielding 0.48 of 1%. That's lower than the overnight bank rate. Wow. And again, reflective of a weak economy. What's your number one story? Well, I, I just, this one did, whoa, hold on here. The headline, $12.3 trillion of quantitative easing has added up to this. Where yeah. are we today? Well, Michael Hartnett of Bank of America, he's their chief investment strategist, is calling that $12.3 trillion of quantitative easing worldwide quantitative failure. Well, I mean, look at the look at the other things that we're seeing. Once again, you look at the incredible growth in debt in the states. That's not produced much growth there. Better than Europe. You've got the record low rates, as you just alluded to. And you're right. Look at the size of the quantitative easing. Government, sorry, central banks going in and buying uh, investment instruments. Uh, you know, trying to flood the system with money. And presto, really, not much has happened in the good. It hasn't, Mike. Very quickly. 637 rate cuts since Bear Stearns imploded in March 2008. That's the number of rate cuts by central banks worldwide. 12.3 trillion in the quantitative easing. 8.3 trillion global debt yielding 0% or less. That means all those bonds we were talking about. 489 million. That's the population of countries with official policy rates of less than zero and just under 1% yield. Under just 0.93%, minus 0.93% yield on two-year government Swiss bonds. That's the lowest yielding government debt in the world. Mike, this is after we have had seven years of this quantitative easing. This is the result. Yeah, it's it is amazing. I'm just wondering if uh, if I was prime minister, and, and I'm not saying this about Mr. Trudeau, but just in general, or president of the U.S. or whatever, and we've increased our debt dramatically. I mean, wouldn't you expect to get a little response from it? So, yeah, they, and then they claim that they've done something big there. No, it's, it's a mess, and I think that's a great number one story to point out that so far we have not seen uh, kind of results commensurate with the kind of money that they've thrown at it, Mike.
Uh, Mike, we haven't. What have we got? Just quickly, a yeah. bear market in stocks, a bear market in, co- in, in commodities, and a loss of $686 billion in market cap for global banks since December 15th. That's the day before the Fed raised rates. And, Mike, you know what? This, a bear market, this looks like this bear market in bank stocks and tumbling bond yields. Boy, yeah. that looks like recession, Mike. We'll be talking more about it. Thanks, Mike. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Mike. Time for the big idea, Mike's big fat idea, coming up. Looking forward to this one. Great stuff. I've got uh, Colin Boquette, managing partner, VentureWorks, with me in just a moment. Jim Dines coming up at the top of the hour. Right now, though, it's time for the big fat idea. Colin Boquette, managing partner, VentureWorks, joins me. Uh, VentureWorks, what they look at is early stage venture capital uh, opportunities there. Colin, thanks for taking the time, and let's just get right to it. What's the specific big idea? Well, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me back. And the big idea is investing in the opportunities created by the Zika virus and other worldwide pandemics. Okay, yeah, we certainly had enough of those in the last several years. Uh, I know, for example, in the Big Island of Hawaii, they got dengue fever. They got a state of emergency going on there. And I know the Director General of the WHO's declared an international public health emergency with the Zika virus. But tell me, how, how do you play this then? Well, there's a number of different ways to do that. I mean, uh, clearly the scientific community and big pharma are actively working to find a vaccine. But uh, we had a theme when I was on your show last of investing in companies that sell shovels in the gold rush. And uh, one of them was Light Access Technologies, that fiber connectivity company. It's up about 20% since we last spoke about it. We really want to apply the same thing here. Right. So we don't want to invest in companies working on the vaccine, which can be very time consuming and requiring uh, costly human clinical trials, etc., but instead, we want to invest in the companies that have developed other approaches to dealing with the outbreak. Okay, give me an example. I, 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 that's very interesting. So, yeah, just tell me, where do we go with this? Well, sure. There's, there's two companies I want to mention here. Now, one of them is larger, and then for uh, uh, even greater leverage, I'll give you a smaller one. So the first is a company called Intrexon. It trades on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker XON. And they've developed a technique or are developing a technique to actually kill off the mosquito population on that and prevent breeding, which is greatly going to reduce the main method of spreading the virus. And for a smaller company that's interesting to look at, there's one called Microbics Biosystems that trades on the TSX under ticker MBX. And they've just announced plans to develop and introduce new products for the use of Zika diagnostic tests. So essentially, they're making test kits. But what's important about that is these can be used in massive quantities globally to see who's been infected. And what really gives them a leg up in this regard is that they've already established themselves as a world leader in developing antigen for what you just mentioned, which is the mosquito-borne dengue fever virus. So it's a very similar application here. So we're talking in, in, in Trexon, we're talking Microbix, Biosystems, uh, et cetera. Uh, just very quickly, who's... Who's this appropriate for? How long should they be planning to hold it? I mean, are we talking a trader, aggressive growth, what? Well, I'd say these are really growth plays. I mean, they're capitalizing on a, a growing public awareness of potentially very big threats. So, so you're looking for some, some uh, serious catalysts coming over the next few quarters that's going to drive these. 
Well, I mean, it's a fascinating thing, and I love, the, as I say, it's really interesting to hear a different way of looking at an opportunity. As you said, you've done it in the gold mine and other areas, but in, in this one, and uh, obviously it's a tremendous concern. Uh, World Health Organization has made that very clear. So uh, interesting to look at companies that uh, are taking it from a different point of view. Uh, great stuff, as usual. Uh, appreciate it very much, Colin. Thanks for taking the time with us. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Colin Bouquet is managing partner VentureWorks. You can find them at www.ventureworks. Works is spelled W-E-R-X, ventureworks.com. I'm going to have to take a break. When I come back, hey, I'm really looking forward to this. What a, is there a better time to have Jim Dines on? He has changed his mind on gold after two and a half years. I will get to that, but I've also got to get to what's going on in the markets, especially the month of January and the first, well, the first five weeks of the new year. Lots to talk about with Jim Dines. Plus, I've got a shocking stat coming your way, and I've got, well, there's so much more. I've got Aussie Jurek. Victor Adair's away this week, but I've got a goofy. All of that coming your way on Money Talks.